This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Thursday, August the 18th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go! Coming up on the show today, Dr. Mike Moffat shares details from a new report by the Smart Prosperity Institute about the targets necessary. God of Double Tap Canada describes the latest apps available for the Blind Shell Classic 2. The University of Melbourne is working on a de-extinction project to bring a certain creature back to life. Don Dickinson will tell you more in her preview of The Guardian this week. I hope it's not a T-Rex. And in the Central Regional Report, Karen McGee will share an update on paddleboarder Mike Shorman and his journey across the Great Lakes, dipping a toe in the water. Let's begin the show with our top story of the day. The federal government is adding four new passport service locations across Canada as a backlog in processing applications continues. Social Development Minister Katrina Gould, Karina Gould says the current crisis accelerated efforts to bring the services to more areas. So not only does it help people in um, less populated centers, but it also helps alleviate some of the demand and some of the pressure in the more urban areas as well. So I think this is a really important um, and long overdue change. The new centers are in Charlottetown, PEI, Trois-Rivières, Quebec, Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and Red Deer, Alberta. Minister Gold laid out the timeline expectations for processing applications. The passport will be available in 10 business days. This will make life significantly easier for those applying for passports in these areas. Moving on to another federal politics story, a a committee of Canadian NPs is seeking budget approval to make a trade trip to Taiwan this fall. Nicole Rice has the story. Conservative MP and Committee Vice Chair Randy Hoback says MPs used to go to Taiwan twice a year before COVID-19. But Hoback says he wants to consult Global Affairs Canada before making the trip now. Earlier this month, China condemned a trip to Taiwan by U.S. House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi and held military drills around Taiwan to show its displeasure. Nicole Reese, The Canadian Press. Meanwhile, the U.S. government plans to hold expanded trade talks with Taiwan. Donna Warder has more on that angle. The announcement comes after an angry Beijing held military drills following this month's visit to Taiwan by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Taiwan is currently the U.S.'s ninth largest trading partner, and being allowed to export more to the U.S. might help Taiwan blunt China's efforts to use its status as the island's biggest trading partner as political leverage. China blocked imports of Taiwanese citrus and other food in retaliation for Pelosi's visit, and U.S.-Chinese relations are at their lowest level in decades. I'm Donna Porter. Coming back to Canada, Ontario is extending the deadline for childcare operators to apply for the $10 a day program and standardizing the process in an attempt to get more providers to sign up. The deadline has been extended from September the 1st to November 1st. Education Minister Stephen Lecce says it will allow operators more time to make decisions. The objective of today's extension, following the good advice of many childcare operators themselves and workers, uh, is to provide more time so that we can incentivize as many operators as possible to participate because the bottom line for the premier and for our government is saving families money. Some for-profit providers are hesitant about the implications to their business if they sign up. And let's look abroad for a climate story. Significant rainstorms are slamming France and neighboring countries. Reporter Inez de la Coutura has more from Paris. 
In Paris, heavy rain flooding subway stations, disrupting traffic and even the president's agenda. Winds of over 60 miles per hour recorded at the top of the Eiffel Tower. Hail also hitting some regions. In Marseille, thunderstorms forced some beaches to close. Parts of Belgium, England and London are also seeing torrential rain and thunderstorms. The flooding is a stark contrast after months of drought and heat waves in Central and Western Europe. Let's get to our daily polls. At AMI-audio is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. On Wednesday, we asked you, how mindful are you about conserving water usage in your day-to-day life? 60% of you said very, 20% of you said somewhat, and 20% of you said not at all. Okay, this next poll question is going to be set up with a little bit of sound and a story. We've been talking about the Canadian National Exhibition, the fair, for a couple of days on the show now. Well, we're getting more details about some of the grub that will be there. So, ketchup and mustard ice cream and tacos that are two feet long are just a few of the new wacky foods fairgoers can gorge on at this year's Canadian National Exhibition. Vendors are doing their best to grab visitors' attention with monstrous creations like an edible slime or Mac and cheese lemonade. CNA CEO Daryl Brown says the items are attention grabbing for a reason. They're over the top because, you know, for some of these vendors, the CNE is like the big paycheck in the year. Uh, you know, the amount of people that come through, we've got 107 vendors in the food building. And so it's, uh, it was a struggle for some of them to make it through, but the majority, are, uh, the vast majority, are back and they're anxiously awaiting the gates opening. The event starts in Toronto on Friday and runs until September the 5th. But I want to ask you a broader question when it comes to fair going, because we know the CNEs, not the only fair across this country. We've got the Pacific National Exhibition that goes on. I know when I lived in Ottawa, there were fairs in every single suburb of Ottawa all summer long. So fair season runs through and through. It's a common thread that connects us across provinces, across communities, across regions. So I'm asking you a general fair question, but I do think we are probably going to take a moment to talk about uh, ketchup and mustard flavored ice cream as well. What is the best part about going to a fair? Food, rides, games, or music? At AMI-audio on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Grace, before we get into the specificities of some of the strange food, what is the best part of going to a fair? I'm conflicted because I want to pick food, but I also want to pick games because I do love to play a good game at the fair, Mm -hmm. especially if you're going with friends, doing the little like water gun race at the fair. Mm -hmm. That's always fun. A little costly all the time. Might be considered a bit of a rip off. (laughs) Maybe. They're more fun. Kind of. You can get a stuffed animal for it. Exactly. Or like a goldfish. You used to be able to win goldfish at the Sault Ste. Marie Fair. My parents never let me play those games. They were like, no, no goldfish. Yeah, we're not getting you a pet. We're not, we're not, we're not getting <laughs> we're you not a We're not here to pet. get you a pet. Um, but I think I'm a little conflicted. It's tied between food and games. I have to confess, the games are a lot of fun. Even just like throwing the darts at the balloons or trying to like yeah. throw the balls into the hoops. I mean, that's stuff that you can do at any random sort of like games-related bar. Uh, that you want to in your neck of the woods in your neighborhood. But for whatever reason at the fair, it just seems like a little more special. And it's like, yeah, take this money out of my wallet. Yeah. Here is cash. How much would you like? Please take all of my money. Take the all CNE of my money. can take all of my money this year. Okay, okay <laughs> we're going to come back to you about some of the weird food in a second here. But I want to give Mike the opening salvo in regards to the daily poll question. And then, Mike, you get first shot at the weird food. But, Mike, what is the best part of going to a fair? I think it's changed for me over the years, depending on how old I was. So when I was younger, it was all about games and rides. 
as I started making a little bit more money, then it became and, and <laughs> a little bit more sensitive a stomach, I guess. <laughs> then it became more about the games, less about the rides, and more about the entertainment, right? So growing up in Ottawa, Super X came to town oh, around yeah. this time of year, every year. And that was when, because you didn't have the Canadian Tire Center, you didn't have these fancy venues, that is when the biggest concerts of the year came to Ottawa. So it was the Super X grandstand, and I can remember Aerosmith, Huey Lewis in the news. Um, I, my wife and I, when, I think it may have been our first concert together. We went to see Randy Travis and wow. Alan Jackson. <laughs> wow. Great country concert. Wow. That's how far back that goes. So um, as I've gotten older, now, now, Dave, honestly, it's just it's about just going. We don't go to a lot of them. We are going this Saturday because we're going to the Argonauts football game. Oh, fun. and our, our ticket to the football game gets you into the X. Oh, right. So on. we're gonna go to this. We're gonna go to the CNE, and it's at now. It's just more about just the overall atmosphere. But I am interested when it comes to games to see post pandemic because there's so many places now that don't take cash. Mm. How are the games gonna operate? Because that was always where you drop a toonie or drop five bucks. Now. I don't know. Are they going to be taking cash? Is it a, is it going to be a cashless venue? Interested to see how that plays out. That's a great question. I never even considered whether or not the fair would go cashless. It, the the fair strikes me as a cash oriented place, a yeah. cash operation. But but I suppose we do live in new modern times when everybody just has plastic. Well, it's just that. I mean, honestly, Dave. Even yesterday, we were at an ice cream shop. And I had to stand back behind a line while the girl opened up the, uh, the, the, the big counter to dig out the ice cream. They didn't want anyone around any open food. Mm, so, you know, th there's all kinds of rules that are still in place. And when it comes to, to cash operations, I think probably in the last couple of years, I might have used cash two or three times. Mm -hmm. It's been mm -hmm. pretty, it's been pretty rare, been pretty rare. And the places where I thought that I would use cash like at a parking lot they go oh no no we don't take cash we get the machine now and you go what like the guy in the booth has a machine now i mean they, those poor guys couldn't even have air conditioning for yeah, the last but 20 now they years get a machine. but now they got they got a machine they're not dealing with cash <laughs> they got a point of sale terminal okay mike yep. it was you this morning who sent me the email with some of the copy about some of this wacky food the mac yep. and cheese lemonade or the edible slime or the ketchup and mustard flavored ice cream so you're going to be there on saturday are you going to go check out these vendors well here's the it caught my eye a couple of weeks ago i was at an argonauts football game a couple of weeks ago as they were starting to set up and right by the exit the tiny Tom Donuts stand, which is there every year. And, and it's there right at the exit because they get you on the way out. <laughs> right next to it was the ketchup and mustard ice cream stand. So I don't know if they're going to try and get people on the way in or on the way out at the end of a long day, maybe sucker a few people into taking something. I don't know. I don't even know how much you're going to charge for this stuff, but I have I, I'm not even curious about it, Dave. I mean, sometimes there's there's weird foods that you kind of go, okay, weird, but I think I'd like to at least taste mm -hmm, it, see mm -hmm. what it is, see what it's all about. Ketchup or mustard ice cream, I just, I can't envision it. I cannot picture the 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 texture and of, of ice cream and the flavor of ketchup and mustard and yeah. dairy all mixing yeah. together. I just can't do it. So no, I will not be doing that. The one thing that I have yet to try that if I see, I might 
Probably one of my big last cheats before I hit the gym again next week. Oh. Deep fried uh, chocolate bar. Okay. I've never had the deep fried chocolate bar. Yeah. When we're talking about frying things, I, I think we see how yeah. that can apply for sweets and sours and savories yeah. Yeah. and all those kinds of things. Whereas the vinegar that you would find in mustard, or I don't even know how I would, how I would describe the taste of ketchup, but it doesn't strike me as something that would cross, uh, it, cross it's, with, it's uh, tomato with, with ice cream. Yeah. Tomato and tomato sugar. Tomato and sugar. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, the acidity of a tomato depends on what tomato too, right? That's true. Like, like the candy apple, that's a standard at, at the fall fair. But it, the different apples will give you a different sort of level of sourness or sweetness. Like, I don't know. What kind of tomatoes are you using in your – are you using French's uh, or are you using Heinz? Are you using Canadian ketchup to to make your ice cream? What kind of ice cream is it too? Is it a Canadian ice cream? I don't know. Mike, I can already tell you're thinking – I can already tell you're thinking about your, uh, your gym your gym going diet here. I can, oh, tell, yeah. I can tell that you're trying to get that last hurrah in. Uh, Mike. Mm, yeah, just one. Thank you for this. We'll talk to you about the big business story in the day of a couple minutes. Grace, before you tell us about the weather, I want to get your take on some of these wacky foods, the mac and cheese lemonade, the uh, the mustard and ketchup ice cream or uh, or the edible slime. You also have intentions of going to the CNE. Will you be tempted? I am coming in here with a totally different opinion than both of you in that the ketchup or mustard soft serve will be tried. I'm going to try it. Oh, I went to a garlic wow. festival in Perth like probably oh, six years ago oh, now. I've been to that garlic and festival. I got Me the too. garlic ice cream. And it was honestly delicious. So I feel like if it's on the same train as that garlic ice cream, I won't have a bad time with okay. it. Okay. So I'm going right. to give it a go. Give her a, give her a medal. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Good for you. Grace, <laughs> are you going this weekend or are you going to go a little later into the festival? Uh, not too sure this weekend or next. Okay. When you go, we're going to bring you in for a full review of your Absolutely. experience of eating, of eating this uh, ketchup and mustard ice cream. That's going to be my excuse. I'm going to tell my boyfriend we have to try all of these things so that I can come back yeah. to the show yeah. And report back. Reporter on the yeah. ground, Grace Scofield. Yeah. All right, excellent. Thank you both for your thoughts on this one. At AMI Audio on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. That's where you vote on our poll. And let's go back to Grace Scofield, who has the national weather update. Thanks, Dave. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We start off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where it's mainly cloudy today, with some showers beginning late this afternoon, and a risk of a thunder shower late this afternoon as well, with a high of 20 degrees. In Halifax, some drizzle ending this morning, then a mix of sun and cloud into the afternoon, with a high of 22. In Montreal, it's mainly cloudy today, with a 40% chance of showers, and a high of 22 degrees. In Ottawa, a mix of sun and cloud today, with a high of 26 degrees. In Toronto today, a mix of sun and cloud with 30% chance of showers this afternoon with a risk of a thunderstorm and a high of 29 degrees. In Thunder Bay, it's mainly cloudy today with 60% chance of showers this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm with a high of 26 degrees. Over in Winnipeg, Manitoba, a few showers ending early this morning, then cloudy with a 40% chance of showers and a risk of a thunderstorm with a high of 22 degrees. In Saskatoon, it's sunny today with a high of 30 degrees. In Calgary, Alberta, it's sunny. There's a heat warning in effect and a high of 30 degrees. 
In Edmonton, Alberta, some matching weather where it's sunny with a heat warning in effect and a high of 30 degrees. Up in Yellowknife, it's sunny today with a high of 28 degrees. In Vancouver, BC, a mix of sun and cloud, clearing this afternoon and a heat warning in effect with a high of 28 degrees. And in Victoria, BC, a mix of sun and cloud, clearing near noon with a high of 27 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Grace. Coming up next, Dr. Mike Moffat will share details from a new report by the Smart Prosperity Institute about the need to build more homes in Ontario. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. A new report explores what is necessary in Ontario to build 1.5 million homes over the next decade. The report poses two questions. Is it feasible? And how can it be done? Dr. Mike Moffat is one of the authors of the report. He's the Senior Director of Policy at the Smart Prosperity Institute at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Moffat, thank you for making time for us today. We're grateful. Oh, thank you for having me. So let's start with where we are in the present. What is the current state of housing supply in Ontario? Well, we have a chronic shortage, and this has uh, been an issue uh, for a while. And it, it partly resp- uh, explains our high uh, home prices as well as our high rents. Rents are continuing uh, to rise faster than inflation. And although home prices have corrected, they've corrected because interest rates have gone up. So if you're buying a new home, you're not, it's not really any more affordable. Yes, you're paying a lower sticker price, but that's eaten up by uh, higher interest costs. So absolutely, in uh, southern Ontario, we have a housing shortage, and all three levels of government recognize that. So I think we've at least recognized the problem. Now we got to figure out how to fix it. Right. Now we need to figure out how we actually address it. So when we're looking at the goal that's been set out of 1.5 million new homes, in your research... Is that goal feasible? Well, it's going to be incredibly difficult. First of all, we our study finds that that is, in fact, the right goal. This kind of 1.5 million number came out of nowhere. It was a, a target set by a provincial task force. So we wanted to see whether or not this number even made sense. And our research found that it does, actually. It is a sort of accurate need of our uh, an accurate assessment of our needs. How do we get there? It's going to be incredibly difficult. Uh, you know, we need to change a lot on the regulatory side, you know, having municipalities allow for uh, building of more density, faster approvals, a lot of the things we've heard from the province. But as well, we have very large chronic labor shortages in the skilled trades. Uh, we have a lot of electricians and, and roofers and sheet metal workers like my, my father who are retired or close to retiring. We're, we were already going to have enough trouble to replace them. Now we need to add a whole pile more to build not just the homes, but all the other infrastructure uh, we need. So this is going to be a big, big challenge. Right now we have a target, but we don't have much of a plan. So. Uh, there's going to be a lot of work for all levels of government to figure out how we address uh, the red tape issues, how we address the labor issues, the productivity issues, and so on. There's a lot of work to be done here. So uh, 
even if we're looking at that that decade, that 10-year goal, if mm-hmm. we're talking about training mm-hmm. new people in these trades, that could be two, three years of education. So it might already put us behind the eight ball there. Mm-hmm. So what are some strategic things that, whether it be government levels or even institutions like colleges, universities, what do they need to be doing right now, like in their policy rooms, mm-hmm. to be putting people in place to start succeeding and getting this ball rolling? Absolutely. So the, the, the colleges play a huge uh, role here in an enrollment. Uh, you know, and then there's a whole apprenticeship uh, process that needs to happen. So you know, we need to make sure that there are apprenticeship spots uh, for everyone. Immigration uh, plays a role as well, uh, that we have immigration programs to bring in uh, foreign workers with, uh, uh, with these skills. But we haven't done a great job of recruiting uh, international talent. So that's another area uh, we need to look at from a policy perspective. And another one is productivity. I don't think it's realistic for us to double the number of people in skilled trades to double the number of people in housing. We're going to have to look at how we can build housing uh, more productively. So mm-hmm. that's looking at changes to the building code to allow new materials, to allow you know mass timber construction, a lot of you know really kind of wonky areas that, but, that are particularly important. Because yeah, we can't just keep doing what we're doing, but double it. We're going to have to get creative with some solutions. Dr. Moffitt, you'd mentioned density before as well. How much is that going to be the key to unlocking certain places in certain areas around the province in terms of maybe building more triplexes, quadplexes, Mm -hmm. uh, even like larger condos, right? Three, four bedroom condos instead of just thinking one bedroom, one bedroom, one bedroom and the occasional two bedroom. How much is density going to play into this? And do you think there's an appetite for cities and the province to do that? It's going to play an absolutely vital role uh, because many of the places where uh, demand is highest is in areas where, where they're running out of greenfield land. So one of the interesting things uh, from our report is we find over the next 10 years that Peel region actually needs more houses than the city of Toronto, mm. uh, simply because it's got so many 20-somethings who live there. And that's kind of the, the future of your market. So, so absolutely, we need to be building more density. But you're also right that that is, that is a political issue that uh, we all kind of like density in theory. But you know, once it gets sort of proposed for your neighbor, there are, you will always have neighbors who say, no, you know what? Our neighborhood's fine the way it is. We don't need those uh, those duplexes or triplexes or, you know, missing middle type pr- property. So this is going to be a challenge for both the provincial government and municipal governments to build that needed density or allow for that needed density to be built while at the same time responding uh, to to the needs and the, the opinions of, uh, of the people who live in the community. Dr. Moffat, you mentioned Peel Region. I think anybody who's taken taking a spin down the 401 lately would know that there's a huge, huge amount of people living out there already. Where are some other parts of the province where we need significant surges in the amount of homes built? So the, the, the two biggest ones are uh, are Toronto and Ottawa, no no question, the GTA and Ottawa. But what happens is you get this sort of spillover demand. So you look at across southwestern Ontario, uh, you know, even places like Tilsonburg. We all think of Tilsonburg, the, the Stomp and Tom song, uh, you know, as being this sort of uh, rural area with tobacco. It's actually one of the fastest growing communities in Ontario uh, because it has so many people moving in from the GTA. A home in Tilsonburg costs more than... Than a, than a house in, in Calgary or Winnipeg right now. So, you know, this ends up spreading all across Southern Ontario that outside of basically Northern Ontario, there's no part of the province that, that isn't uh, suffering from, from some level of uh, housing shortage. 
I, I want to talk about something that uh, the premier of Quebec mentioned in a press conference last Friday, where he said the pandemic is what slowed us down. That's why we have housing shortages. We just haven't been able to get enough workers onto job sites because of lockdowns. What do you make of that assertion that some politicians are making? Yeah, so so that certainly happened. And and we found we looked at other provinces and we found that, that Quebec actually doesn't suffer from the same level of housing shortage as Ontario. So I think from a, a Quebec perspective, that that is, uh, you know, I think that is a fair assessment. And that did happen in Ontario. And it's part of our concern that over the next six to 18 months, you know, we need a lot more housing. But at the same time, we're seeing developers and home builders pull back a little bit because, you know, lumber prices are still very expensive. Interest rates are going up and these uh, these, these developers and home builders have to finance all of these projects. So our our housing starts are going in the wrong direction. They're actually going down mm. at a time when they need to, to increase. So that makes it an even bigger challenge than it otherwise would be. Because our network oftentimes likes to apply the disability lens to these stories, we know housing and disability and accessibility do intersect. I'm curious if your research had any examined any implications in regards to accessible housing. Uh, we haven't yet, uh, though that is that is on our list. I have a, a seven-year-old uh, with uh, severe nonverbal autism. You know, he is going to need accessible housing when he's older. So this is a very personal uh, issue for me. So absolutely, it's not a matter of just getting 1.5 million units, but, but are they accessible? A big part of the research we do here at Smart Prosperity is environmental. So can we build that many homes without building too much sprawl or uh, you know, having uh, you know having too much emissions actually coming from the building or transportation itself. So there's all of these other issues that that we need to absolutely understand. And it's not just you know it's not just a raw number. You know, we have to make sure that these these homes are accessible and affordable and environmentally friendly. Mm. Dr. Moffat, I saw you posting about the report on social media all week long. I know you've been doing a lot of media coverage as well. Where can people go to get their hands on this report? Because it's a really important one, and I think you. Even though it's Ontario for- focused, it certainly has national implications. Oh, oh, a- absolutely. Uh, so the report can be found at institute.smartprosperity.ca. The, the report is Ontario focused, but as you point out, these issues are across the country, uh, particularly in British Columbia as, as well. So it's a very uh, it, it's a very easy uh, easy read. It's mostly mostly about the numbers. So I, I highly recommend uh, people check it out. And you can see for those of you who are in Ontario. Ontario, what the numbers are for, for your community. Dr. Moffat, we're so thankful for you uh, coming on the show today and unpacking this a little bit. Hopefully we get a chance to connect again, again down the road because you and your colleagues do excellent work. Well, well, thank you. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Mike Moffat, Senior Director of Policy from the University of Ottawa's Smart Prosperity Institute. Coming up after the break, we continue the theme of talking about research where the University of Melbourne is working on a de-extinction project to bring back a certain creature. Goodness gracious, I hope it's not a T-Rex. I hope it's not a woolly mammoth. I even hope it's not one of these, like, mosquitoes that are bigger than alligators. Don Dickinson will share details in her preview of The Guardian this week. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Lori Paris with your Morning Business Minute. Investor concerns about inflation and the possibility of recession saw markets down on both sides of the border. The S&P TSX Composite Index fell 88 points to 2181. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average sank 171 points to 33980. 
The S&P 500 index dropped 31 points to 4,274, while the Nasdaq Composite was off by 164 points to 12,938. Asian stock markets followed Wall Street lower after the U.S. Federal Reserve said American inflation is too high, suggesting support for more aggressive interest rate hikes. Japan's Nikkei plunged 280 points to close at 28,942. South Korea's Kospi slipped one point to 2,515, and the Shanghai Composite Index fell 14 points to 3,277. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 77.34 cents U.S., just slightly down from yesterday's close of 77.45 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Lori Paris. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's get to a preview of The Guardian this week. Of course, you can hear that entire reading program Saturdays at 12 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Don Dickinson is the producer of The Guardian this week and joins us to talk about a few of the articles that are going to be featured. Hey, good morning, Don. Hi, Dave. How are you? I am well, Don. You've got a couple really neat stories for us today. And let's start abroad where Thailand has done something of a U-turn on cannabis it used to be very illegal, and now <laughs> not so much. You can get it at market stalls, beach not clubs, so hotel receptionists. So this is uh, something of surprising news. Walk me through the change and how this came about. Well, talk about a U-turn here, Dave. Um, anyone familiar with Thailand's notoriously hardline attitude towards drugs uh, will hear this and think, wow, Maybe I'm high on something here, you know, (laughs) Uh, because the country where narcotics offenses have attracted the death sentence and been caught with a joint at a party has landed tourists in infamous uh, in the infamous Bangkok Hilton now appears. Oh, I know. I've read stories. I've read stories about that Bangkok Hilton. Oh, boy. Yeah, no, it's terrifying, right? Uh, well, now it, it appears that the country has done, done a complete about-face, and on June 9th, the Thai government removed cannabis and hemp plants from its banned narcotics list, leaving people in Thailand free to grow and sell it. Why do you think there's been this change? I, I think maybe we can have a broader conversation about changing attitudes towards cannabis, but why particularly in Thailand? Well, Dave, basically, it's the almighty dollar. That's what it's come down to, because, of course, Thailand, like many countries, have been affected uh, terribly by COVID. And so in an apparent bid to attract tourists in the post-COVID slump, the Thai government has decriminalized uh, pot. And now streets are dotted with dispensaries with names such as Mr. Cannabis and tourists <laughs> <laughs> and tourists tell of being offered marijuana openly at the reception of their hotels. Wow. Wow. Uh, I know. I know. Yet the laws around cannabis are far more blurred uh, than this pat pot paradise suggests. Right. We're not necessarily talking about just uh, freedom to wander around and roll one up whenever you like. So what are some of the restrictions <laughs> that remain in place? Well, yes, the government line, uh, and you know, you got to take this with a grain of salt, the government line is that production and consumption are permitted only for medical, not recreational use, and only of low potency marijuana containing less than 0.2% THC, the main hallucinogenic compound. Recreational use of cannabis is discouraged, with officials saying that anyone caught smoking cannabis in public could be charged for creating, I love this, a public smell nuisance. (laughs) 
Yeah, I know. Wow. Uh, well, I was walking outside the Rogers Center yesterday before the Blue Jays game, and there were quite a few uh, public smell nuisances going on. And, you know, Don, I think that is one of the interesting components here, right? Like even as, as I broaden this out a teensy bit, we've seen a huge sea change. Really, I, it started before 2015 in Colorado, but once one U.S. state legalized it, Basically, the entire West Coast legalized it. The majority of the country west of the Great Plains has legalized it. We've seen legalization in Canada since that time. There's been a massive, massive shift. But there are still sort of these unwritten rules or expectations that say, you know, don't fire up in the middle of a large crowd. Don't fire up wherever you please. You know, try to keep it a little bit on the hush-hush. Like even in Colorado, on on the streets of Denver, you're not supposed to just fire up a joint willy-nilly. You're supposed to either be using balconies or or specified areas. So that – but – but I, sorry, I'm, I'm just kind of like freestyling here, Don. But yeah, as you've been yeah. observing this, how would you describe the sea change that's maybe taken place in the last decade? Well, it, it, it is very interesting, you know. I, I guess um, authorities are in a bit of a tight spot because there's a lot of people that are still very negative on drugs in general. Um, I sit on a condo board um, of a... Um, my mom's old condo. And, uh, you know, we had to come up with uh, all kinds of uh, 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 of rules mm-hmm. for how, how we were going to deal with this. You know, whether people could, I mean, obviously it, they can smoke in their units now, but with a condominium, it is a more uh, communal living situation, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, are we going to allow people to smoke in the party room? Are we going to allow people to smoke in the lobby? Are we going to allow people to smoke on their balconies? See, these are all things yeah. that have to be yeah. thrashed out, right? I know, so I know. At a it's certain, not cut and dry. Yeah, I know. I know, for example, in my condo building, they, they've they had to come to a real reckoning because people were allowed to smoke cigarettes on their balcony, but they were trying to ban cannabis and that a bunch of residents were like, that makes no sense. You, you can't tell me you can smoke a cigarette outside and you can't smoke a joint outside. They're like, oh, but the smell, it's like, yeah, cigarettes smell too. You know, like these are these are all considerations that the people are trying to wade through as there has been the shifting mentality around it. Uh, Don, let's jump from cannabis, plant life to some different kind of life going on. The University of Melbourne is partnering with a U.S. biotech company to plan a genetic restoration in a special de-extinction project. I'm getting Jurassic Park vibes here, Don. <laughs> and so you should, David. So you should. Uh, scientists in Australia and the U.S. Has launched an, have launched an ambitious multi-million dollar project to bring back the thylacine, a marsupial that died out in the 1930s and is trying. they're trying to reintroduce it back reintroduce it back into its native Tasmania. The thylacine is the second undertaking of Colossal, a Texas-based biotech de-extinction company that last year announced it planned to use genetic materials to recreate the woolly mammoth and return it to the Arctic tundra. And I heard your introduction (laughs) earlier on. About the woolly mammoths, woolly mammoths, and saber-toothed tigers, and T-Rexes. I don't know. Some of these, uh, some of these, uh, you know, characters are um, difficult to deal with, shall we say, if they get out of control. But why the Tasmanian tiger in particular? Well, it turns out that the thylacine was Australia's only marsupial apex predator. It once lived across the entire continent, but was 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 restricted to Tasmania about 3,000 years ago. It really isn't one of these huge, gigantic T-Rex kind of things. It's more like a dog-like size. 
and uh, <laughs> you're saying thank God, right? <laughs> I, well, I'm, I'm giggling here because so are coyotes, and they're like running roughshod in Vancouver right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is, yeah, and and it's very similar to to that. It it is more dog-like, and it was extensively hunted, um, obviously to the point of extension. And the last known survivor died in captivity <clears throat> in 1936. Now, obviously, there's going to be complications, but they hope to do it. So who knows? Don, I'm, I'm going to make you put on your scientist coat for one second here, your nice white lab coat. And, and I almost apologize, but what is, what are they actually, or how are they actually going to accomplish this? Okay. So bear with me here, James. I will, I will tiger with you. My degree was in English. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cultural studies in poli sci over here, Don. So okay. <laughs> I think we're both out of our elements. <laughs> okay. The scientists aim to uh, take stem cells from a living species with similar DNA. They fat-tailed Donart. I love that. And turn them into the thylacine uh, cells, or basically the closest approximation, using gene editing expertise developed by George Church, a professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School and Colossal's co-founder. The new marsupial-specific assisted reproduction technologies, wow, will be needed to use the stem cells to make an embryo, which will then be transferred into either an artificial womb or a Donart surrogate to gestate. So basically, Dave, we are living the future. We learned nothing from Jurassic Park, Don. Nothing from Jurassic Park. But you know what? Still pretty darn cool. Uh, Don, thank you for this. Have a great weekend. Okay, you too, Dave. Bye-bye. That's Don Dickinson, the producer of our reading program, The Guardian This Week, which you can find Saturdays at 12 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. Coming up next, Manitoba is encouraging residents to share feedback on new disability support regulations. I've got the details in the Accessibility Story Roundup. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Mike Ross will be here with the big business story of the day in just a couple of minutes. But first, I have the accessibility story roundup. Oh, this one was written by Amy Ellen Prentice of Global News. The province wants Manitobans feedback on new disability support regulations. The province wants Manitobans to review and provide feedback on the new disability support regulation. The disability support regulation contains important information about the benefits available to clients of the new program and amendments to the assistance regulation include the introduction of a new supportive planning incentive for people facing medical barriers to employment. Now, this is just a draft, but the draft regulations were developed following two months and two, excuse me, two rounds of public engagement, consultation with community stakeholders, and the feedback of a community advisory committee. Both the related proposed amendments to the assistance regulation and the draft of the disability support regulation have been released online and will be open for public consultation for 45 days. In addition to providing feedback, Manitobans can also register to attend a virtual or in-person engagement session. I've got a couple quotes here because there was a lot of buzzwording in the way that was written from the fam- family's minister 
Rochelle Squires. So here's some quote from the family's ministers. Manitoba is in the process of transforming income assistance in order to provide services that are better tailored to the specific needs of clients, and that includes the development of a new income support program for persons with disabilities in addition to continued emphasis on assessing each client's specific situation and needs. So we're going to make sure there's a link available to you so you can learn more and dig through some of this yourself because some of it is quite dense reading. A lot of it is kind of government speak, but we'll make sure on the blog after the show, ami.ca slash now blog to have that up for you, ami.ca slash now blog. The one thing that I will point out as we're sort of sharing this story it's become a little bit more common for provincial governments to say, we're going to find specific needs. We're going to tailor programs individually to you, which on paper and as a concept sounds awesome, right? We know that disability can disability support cannot be solved with a blunt instrument. But the big concern that comes up with this, especially if we look at, say, the autism program in Ontario, when the government said, hey, we're going to let you do self-directed stuff and here's some cash and you figure it out. Oftentimes, it amounts to less than the actual number you need to access the services you require. So that's where you have to kind of go beyond the, 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 the top line, which says more freedom for you as a person with a disability to make choices about your care and your life. Does the funding equal your needs? Because freedom sounds awesome. Freedom as a concept is a word that we all love. But what happens when that freedom comes with inadequacies? And I think anyone who's lived the disability experience, particularly those who are on government assistance, can tell you inadequacy is the word of the day. Let's bring in Mike, Mike Ross for the big business story of the day. Mike, we talked about this with Nazreen yesterday, but we're starting to get a little bit more information, a teensy tiny trickle about the comeback of Zellers. Yeah, so... I want to sort of focus on some of the the reaction that has come from business analysts, as well as a little bit of the history that's now being shared about Zellers, because we we all know the brand, and for some of us, we sort of grew up with the brand. I can remember my my early days in radio when my my, my wife and I were first married. She was just starting off as a teacher on a contract. I was working in radio for very little money. So I can remember by this time of the summer when the teacher with the contract wasn't getting paid, we were buying our groceries on a Zeller's credit card at this time of the year. Like it was it was tough going and we were happy to have a store like Zeller's that we could go to where things were pretty affordable. So some good memories, some some mm-hmm. some memories of Zeller's getting us through some tough times back then. And it was like that for a lot of people. But I did not realize that this store, this chain of stores started in 1931 oh, wow. by a Walter Zeller. It was actually the guy's name, Walter Zeller in London, Ontario, and it was uh, billed as retailer to thrifty Canadians. And then, of course, their big slogan, the lowest price is the law. That became the slogan for many years. But it grew from 12 stores in 1932 to 155 stores when it expanded in the mid-1970s as it was all across the country. Great memories, right? And that's what I th- HBC is playing on here. It's that nostalgia card. And that is huge these days. But I read a, uh, an article the other day about another brand, another nostalgic brand that's coming back. And, and someone reacted to it saying, that's great, but what's the business model? Because in the end, a lot of times with the nostalgia, people just want the T-shirt, right? Yeah. They just want to yeah. buy the T-shirt with the logo on it. And it's beautiful. And it makes you, it makes you feel good. But- 
what's the plan? And uh, reading in the Globe and Mail this morning on the Globe and Mail today, the feeling is that a lot of the those thrifty Canadian shoppers have moved on. Yeah, they, they know where to, to go. Walmart, they know is, where to go. They've, they've gone they, to Walmart, yeah. which has grown. Grown rather. Uh, Amazon has grown. Dollarama, oh, Dollar yeah. Tree is expanding yeah. big time. And now the, the the store that sort of became Canada's, and this is in their their slogan, Canada's discount family store. That's Giant Tiger. They are in so, <coughs> excuse me, so many other locations, mm-hmm. so many new locations mm-hmm. across the country in the last. 10 to 20 years, um, they are a huge player in the market as well. So where exactly this fits in, a lot of business analysts over the last 24 hours are saying it's in the, it, it's a niche thing. It's a nostalgia thing, and it doesn't really have a lot of place to go unless they're going to open up actual brick-and-mortar stores on their own and really have bargain basement prices and really compete with the Walmarts and, and, and those, you know, really Walmart's the only one that's left as far as a big retail store, big box store. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the competition is stiff in other parts of that thrift market. And uh, this one just feels like, eh, maybe they should have just sold some Zeller's t-shirts. <laughs> I, I, first of all, I love the idea of just selling Zeller's t-shirts. People would have gone bonkers for that. Yep. That's a great idea. And some of the reporting that came out yesterday, Mike, is that they're going to be partitioning off little parts of HBC or yeah. Hudson Bay Company stores to to sort of say, oh, here's the Zeller's corner. And I, I just don't see how that's going to work. <clears throat> no, I mean, that, that's hey, the thing. Hey, here's, here's how I sort of talked. I talked about it with my wife yesterday. I said, to me, it feels like you have a Mercedes-Benz dealership that is going to have a little kiosk that sells Kia cars. If I want a Kia car, I want to go to a Kia dealership and deal with you know, Kia cars and see all the, the, the things that they have to offer. I don't want this little tiny Kia box inside the massive, luxurious Mercedes-Benz yeah, uh, yeah. store where I can't really afford anything anyway. And I, I have no reason to go there. And that's the the Bay HBC has really become way upscale way out of price. It's upscale, upscale it's, it's for an up, so it's, many Canadians. It's an upscale so, store, yeah, for sure. And, and and they've tried over the years to have these little sort of niche areas in their store where there are discounted items, but it's such a small portion of their store. Where does Zeller's really fit in? Yeah. And I just can't see it being something that's going to last mm-hmm. unless. They're, unless they're trying to see if there is really a taste for it. And if it does work at the kiosk level, is it worth growing outside of the e-commerce and the kiosk market? We'll see where that goes. Or selling very particular goods, right? Deciding sure. that when you go to that Zeller's kiosk, there's very particular stuff for sale there. Because as you put it, sort of the big box, either Walmart's or Dollarama is going to eat their lunch every day because Canadians, but what per- shoppers already know, right, where they're going to go. What, what particular products would you, yeah. would, oh, would you think of, Dave? That's because tough. That's, when we list off Giant Tiger, Walmart, Dollarama, Dollar Tree, Amazon – I, I can't imagine something that Zellers would have exclusively. Yeah. Unless yeah. unless they've got that they bring back the the club Z points, right? That mm-hmm, that was a very mm-hmm. successful rewards program. And we know reward programs are huge now. <laughs> yeah, they I'm do a sucker draw for in them. customers. <laughs> I'm a sucker for so, them. Yeah. Yeah. So so maybe that's the angle they take at here. And maybe going small kiosk and e-commerce is a smart way to sort of go into this, see what kind of taste there is for the brand and where they can go in the future. 
I just have a hard yeah. time, you know, believing that Canadian consumers haven't just moved on and have found their, other, their their new thrift store over the last several years that have moved on. As I brainstorm in real time, and I, I do have to say goodbye to you after this, but as I brainstorm in real time, Mike, maybe that's the place where some of like the significantly marked down uh, high-end brand stuff goes, right? That people just know that's the corner of the bay where that you go to right. when you're shopping yep. there for like the really nice polo shirts, but but mm-hmm. it's either out of season or whatnot. So instead of them selling to another wholesaler who's going to move it at a thrift store, they just do it themselves. But again, that, that requires a lot of strategy. Mike, thank Thank you for this. I appreciate the deeper dive. My pleasure, Dave. That's Mike Ross with the big business story of the day. I've got a couple of news stories to wrap up the hour. Let's begin overseas, where the UN Secretary General and Turkey as president are in Ukraine to discuss the war. Karen Chamas has more. UN Chief Antonio Guterres and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan are to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in the western Ukrainian city of Lviv. Both Guterres and Erdogan played a part in helping to release 22 million tons of corn and other grain for export that was stuck in the country since the Russian invasion. The three leaders will also discuss the situation at the Russian-controlled Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in southern Ukraine. Moscow and Kiev have both accused each other of shelling the plant. I'm Karen Chamas. And let's look south of the border, where the Florida judge who approved the FBI search of former U.S. President Donald Trump's home is scheduled to hold a hearing today to decide whether to unseal the affidavit used to justify the search. More from reporter Mona Kazor-Abdi. Judge Bruce Reinhardt is said to hold a hearing after several media outlets requested that the documents be made public, citing the, quote, historic importance of these events. But the Justice Department has requested that the document remain sealed as its release could, quote, cause significant and irreparable damage to its ongoing criminal investigation and could likely chill witness cooperation. Trump has also called for its release, saying it is, quote, in the interest of transparency. Let's jump back to Canada, where Statistics Canada says the proportion of Canadians who speak predominantly French at home has decreased in nearly all the provinces and territories, including Quebec. The agency's Eric Cantor-Malenfant says 2021 census data shows English was the first official language spoken by three out of four Canadians, an increase since 2016. In contrast, the proportion of Canadian with French as first official language spoken uh, decreased from 22.2% in 2016 to 21.4% in 2021. He says the number and proportion of Canadians whose first official language is English has been rising since 1971. The data also shows a slight decrease in the number of people who speak Indigenous languages. Stephanie Taylor has those numbers. Statistics Canada says caution should be exercised when comparing 2021 and 2016 census years because it couldn't collect information from all Indigenous communities. It nonetheless reports the number of Indigenous language speakers in Canada has dropped. In 2021, it said 243,000 people reported being able to speak an Indigenous language. That's down from 2016 when that figure was around 251,000. The data comes as revitalizing Indigenous languages has been identified as a priority for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's Liberal government. Stephanie Taylor, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. And one more clip related to this story. The 2021 census also shows that 4.6 million Canadians predominantly speak a language other than English or French at home. Here once again is Eric caron Belenfort. In 2021, one in eight Canadians predominantly spoke at home a language other than English or French which represent an increase since uh, the last census, and it's increasing um, over, over the decades. 
And we'll discuss some of the implications of this data tomorrow on the news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joy Gupta. That usually starts at about 9.15 a.m. Eastern time after the first segment of the show. So mark your calendars and show up tomorrow. But don't go anywhere because after the break, Mike Ross will be here with the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Thursday, August the 18th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Stephen Scott of Double Tap Canada will discuss some of the latest apps available for the Blind Shell Classic 2 and his journey across the Great Lakes. We'll dip a toe in the water with Karen McGee. But first, let's get to Mike Ross and the regional news update. Thank you, Dave. We'll begin in British Columbia police and a description of a suspect in what they say was a possible attempted abduction of a child. They say the child, who was not hurt, reported that an unknown man pulled him through the window of a ground floor bedroom in their home Monday night, reaching the road before the youngster managed to break free. The suspect fled and could not be found when police arrived. Police say the child described the man as being around 40 years old, standing about 5 foot 10 with dark skin, a medium build, short brown hair, a full beard, a silver piercing through the front of his nostrils, and a tattoo of a flower on his left arm. To the prairies, people at two longtime encampments at the Manitoba legislature have been told to leave. The province has presented eviction notices to demonstrators on the north and east sides of the building. Manitoba Justice says rallies and protests are acceptable on the grounds, but encampments are not permitted for the safety of staff, visitors, tourists, and other protesters. The move comes after the Progressive Conservative government passed legislation earlier this year to deal with such encampments. Critics say Saskatchewan's plan to send people to Alberta for privatized surgeries if they can afford their own travel costs isn't fair to patients who don't have the money. The provincial government announced the plan yesterday saying it would free up some surgery spots in Saskatchewan. Colleen Flood, a University of Ottawa health policy expert, says it will mean patients who can't afford to travel to Alberta will lose out on access to timely care. NDP opposition leader Carla Beck says the move will let people with money jump the line for surgery which goes against the principles of the Canadian healthcare system. The Ministry of Health says there were more than 35,000 people waiting for a surgery in the province as of March 31st. In Ontario, the province is set to announce a plan today to stabilize the healthcare system as hospitals across the province grapple with ongoing staff shortages. Health Minister Sylvia Jones said on Tuesday, the province's goal is to provide the best care possible to patients. Over the last week, Jones and Premier Doug Ford have said the province is considering all options to improve the healthcare system and have not ruled out further private sector involvement, though they said Ontarians would not have to pay out of pocket for anything. Hospital emergency departments throughout Ontario have closed for hours or even days this summer due to a severe shortage of nurses. To Quebec, and that province preparing to launch a province-wide COVID-19 vaccination campaign ahead of an expanded fall or an expected fall wave. 
But even as the province moves to expand fifth dose eligibility, it's unclear whether the new campaign will motivate the millions of Quebecers still without a third dose to roll up their sleeves. Only 56% of Quebecers five years and over have a third vaccine dose, a number that has barely moved in months. While the government suggests uptake is low because millions have a recently have a recent infection, health experts say pandemic fatigue and government communication are also part of the issue. Dr. Don Vin, an infectious disease specialist at McGill University Health Center, says the government should have more strongly promoted COVID-19 vaccines over the past six to eight months instead of making a big push now toward the end of the current wave. And to the Atlantic region, an environmental group in Nova Scotia is hoping to combat the effects of climate change by planting eelgrass in the ocean. Eelgrass, which looks just like typical seaweed, absorbs carbon and methane through photosynthesis and sequesters them in its root systems. The plant's carbon-storing root system also helps moderate levels of acid in the ocean, which are rising due to climate change and damaging the health of some marine life. Dalhousie University and the Ecology Action Center are managing a project to transplant and replant eelgrass at a beach in the South Shore. And those are your top regional headlines going coast to coast across the country. Very good. Thank you very much, Mike. We appreciate it. Let's bring in Jeff Ryman for a sports chat. All right, Jeff, walk me through this. I was at the baseball game yesterday, so the World Juniors were not quite on my radar, but we talked quite a bit about the anatomy of an upset yesterday, and one team we didn't talk about was Czechia. And next thing you know, they're the team that came away with the big upset yesterday. My goodness, what a day it was at the World Juniors. I mean, every single game was decided by three goals or less. And you might think, well, three goals is quite a bit. But at this point in the World Juniors, like, that's uh, actually not too bad. That's pretty close for for a, a bunch of different reasons. But you're right. Czechia beating the USA. And U.S., they went undefeated in the prelims. And now they're out. The Gone. second time in seven years. Done. Second time in seven years that they will not medal at all. Um, and obviously they were one of the favorites heading into this. I mean, they have a really good team and they lost to a Czech team, uh, that was feisty and got out ahead and didn't look back. They won four, two. So, yeah. you know, uh, a, a, a very nice win for Czechia and that is who uh, Canada gets actually on Friday at 4 PM Eastern. So, uh, that will be a, a game I think a lot of people are going to be looking forward to. Yeah, I, I, I've got a couple of, of of weird thoughts about this. Number one, uh, I ended up watching the replay this morning. The goal that Jan Mishak scored to open the scoring for yeah. Czechia was incredible. He's a Montreal Canadiens prospect. He's he had actually, a great tournament. He leads the tournament in shots on goal. I, I was I was blown away when I when I saw that stat by by Mishak and he's a player who can certainly be a, a difference maker. He was really good in the AHL playoffs as well in the Calder Calder Cup playoffs. So that's a really exciting thing for a lot of Montreal fans. But Jeff, I, again, I, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, so I apologize. And it's okay to say, Dave, that question is going uh, too beyond my pay grade. Did they reseed the semifinals? Because I'm really confused by Canada playing Czechia when I thought that 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 side of the bracket would have been kept away from Canada because of the U.S. the U.S. being on top of that side of the bracket. Yeah. But I get the impression they reseeded. Yeah, I think it's reseeded because uh, it, it was only supposed to be Canada and USA that could potentially meet 
in the gold medal game, yeah. I believe. Yeah. But I, I think since they were ousted, um, I, it must be some sort of reseeding, yeah. which I kind of like. I do I kind of like. I do too. I prefer reseeding as well. I, I like it, and the matchups are actually really intriguing. I mean, Czechia just beating USA, now they get Canada. Can they dismount a Canadian team? Like, what a story that could be for Czechia. And then you have Sweden and Finland. Like, that's another classic matchup Scandinavian right there. Scandinavian rivalry. Semi, the Scandinavian rivalry, right? Uh, so I, I really, really like the way things are playing out. Uh, in a 4 o'clock Eastern game tomorrow. So for those uh, who are on the East Coast, you know, just uh, maybe slide out of work a little early <laughs> so, and head to the bar. <laughs> yeah, so that was my other observation. I'm very surprised by the scheduling here. They chose to put the Canada-Czechia game at 4 p.m. Eastern time instead of 8 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow. I, yeah. I thought they may have wanted to aim, let maybe more locals in Edmonton get to that game. Yeah. Although all those and tickets on the are, West Coast. And on the West Coast, yeah, for folks in Vancouver, uh, in, in British yeah. Columbia. The, that game is going to be starting at 1 p.m. local time. Now it's a Friday in the summer. You know, some yeah. folks are able to skedaddle uh, from time to time to different play the timing on that one as well. And Jeff, the, the team that we did talk about yesterday is maybe having the anatomy for the upset was Latvia and Sweden. And they yeah. kept themselves in that game against Sweden the whole way oh. through through some excellent goaltending as I was watching the highlights on that one this morning. And this Swedish team, we talked about it yesterday, struggling to put the puck in the net. So going into tomorrow's game, Finland favored by a half a goal in that matchup. Yeah. And Finland, one of the more offensively gifted teams uh, in this tournament as well. And you got to give Latvia some credit. Huge I mean, credit. it was it was one one for for quite a while, and I believe it was halfway through the third period That's right. that I think Sweden was able to uh, get the go ahead and didn't look back after that. But that was one of those games where we, we sort of were like. I don't know. I, I don't think this is going to be a cakewalk that, that some people might expect when Sweden goes against Latvia. And man, what a story with that that would have been. I, I, I kept repeating myself yesterday. I'm going to say it again. But I mean, like that would have been unreal of, of a story <laughs> yes. to, to see them get by Team Sweden. But nonetheless, I love the the the, the last four teams in this tournament. Yeah. It's going to be fun to yeah, watch. Yeah, definitely a good one. So, Jeff, I was at the Blue Jays game yesterday. Yeah. Uh, not to reveal too, too much here, but I didn't quite realize I was watching a no-hitter through five innings because I was too busy yeah. creating a graveyard of beer cans. But Ross Stripling had just a phenomenal game. Like that game was churning yeah. along yesterday. The first seven innings like took less than less than like an hour and a half to get through. It was amazing. Yeah. And, you know, Ross Stripling, I mean, one of those guys who has sort of been an unsung hero for the Toronto Blue Jays wasn't really expected to do too much in the starting rotation. And here he is, maybe one of the more consistent guys in that. He might be the most consistent guy out of all of the guys <laughs> who have stunning. started stunning. For, for the Blue Jays. And he comes out with an absolute gem of a game yesterday. What really ticks me off, Dave, he didn't get the win. Like, I don't no, understand sometimes in baseball how things work. I mean, he allowed one hit, had like seven strikeouts, no walks, seven innings, the whole nine yards, and they didn't give him the win. And I'm thinking, how could you not give him the double? I know. But nonetheless, I know. It's, uh, it's the it's, Blue Jays. It's unfortunately ahead, just David. how it works, right? It's that if you if you get taken out of yeah. the game before your team has the lead, you don't get the win. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I think this is an ongoing debate within baseball about, you know, how things should operate. But nonetheless, they they did get the win, which was nice to see there. They were slumping and now 
they have a big test against the Yankees. I mean, this is going to be a big series. And the Yankees, they're not doing so hot either. I mean, like ever since the All-Star break, uh, they haven't been able to put up those numbers they were pre-All-Star. So, um, you know, they're a bit of a reeling team right now. And the Blue Jays, they're kind of in the same boat. But nonetheless, this should be fun. Kikuchi shifted to the bullpen, by the way. Um, that is something I think a lot of people were were asking for. And, uh, you know, he's been one of those starters that just has not been, here's your favorite word, consistent throughout the entire year. So, uh, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see how things change and maneuver over the next couple of days for, for the Jays. The other thing uh, that really jumped out to me, and, and I couldn't believe this when I was listening to the Globe and Mail show this morning, uh, George Springer gets that big hit to uh, put, push the first run across the plate for the Jays last night. That's the first time he's ever had a hit as a pinch hitter in his entire career. I was blown away when I heard that Whoa. stat. Interesting stat there. Dude. Yeah. Nice. I mean, well, I can thank the folks at the Globe and Mail and Mike Ross <laughs> for reading it, but I, I was I was stunned when I heard it. I was blown away because he's a good hitter. You would have figured at some point he would have uh, been able to actually get a hit on a pinch hitting situation, but no, first time in his career. So really exciting moment there with Springer uh, pushing that run across the plates. Over 40,000 people at the game yesterday. And Jeff, I'll tell you, the nice. atmosphere was great. The atmosphere in the building was awesome yesterday. So had a nice time. They never opened the dome, which I was bummed about because it never rained, but uh, you know. We'll uh, we'll try again in a couple weeks here to enjoy another game. <laughs> Jeff, there is an NFL preseason game tonight, but I refuse to talk about it. The Chicago yeah, Bears yeah. and the Seattle Seahawks are going to be two of the worst teams in football. I We cannot talk about this game. It's going to be a sure. comedy of errors. I don't know why it's the only game featured on the Thursday schedule. Terrible, terrible planning by the NFL. You should hide that game, if anything. Like, don't even play the game, in fact. Be like, you know what? You guys just go home and cut some players. Just decide arbitrarily. No one wants to see this. But, Jeff, I do want to get your reaction to the news that broke yesterday. LeBron James of the Los Angeles Lakers signing a two-year extension. So eliminating any of this speculation about him hitting free agency next summer. Two years. Is it $97.5 million? Is that the number on the extension? $97.1 million. Oh, and if, I was off and by just the, a couple. And there's apparently a clause in that contract that states if the cap goes up, so does his salary. So this can be very <laughs> well worth $111 million over the course of two years. Um, just to put that in comparison, Sidney Crosby is the highest earning NHL player ever, and he's only made 138 million. Wow. So, <laughs> and LeBron's going to do it in two years. Like, it's just absurd the amount of money that gets thrown around in the NBA compared to uh, other leagues. But, you know, looking at LeBron James' stat line, I mean, this guy's 37, 38 years old, still putting up really good numbers, over 30 points per game mm-hmm, last year, shooting mm-hmm. over 50% from the field, um, distributing the ball, rebounding the ball, actually had a, a great season defensively. It's just, I think injuries are maybe starting to creep their way in there when you're that big and you're that athletic. He has missed a couple of games here and there over the last couple of seasons. So that's something to really look out for. But when he's healthy... I think he's worth uh, every bit of those close to $100 million, Dave. If he'd scored 20 more points last season, he would have won the scoring title. 20 more points, he would have won the scoring title at 37 years old. He would have been the oldest scoring title winner in the NBA history. I think what matters here, Jeff, is that it's stability. There have been a lot of question marks swirling around the Los Angeles Lakers, especially with LeBron potentially hitting free agency next summer. 
I think that just creates a certain sense of stability. And that's what the Lakers need because there have been some significant ups and downs since he arrived there. They gave away a lot of assets to acquire Anthony Davis. They made a very questionable trade to acquire Russell Westbrook instead of improving the team on aggregate with a number of, here's the Jeff Rymanism, a bunch of depth players and rotation players for them. But this is the signal that says to any maybe more veteran player or guy who's looking for a place to land to compete for a title, it says LeBron and Anthony Davis are going to be here in place for three more years. So if you want to try and get on this train and win a title, please come join us. So I I think that at least it creates an indication to the rest of the league that LeBron and the Lakers are not going to mess around for the next couple of years. Yeah, and that's enticing, like you said, to a bunch of free agents. You know, if you want to hop on that train with a couple of the best players in the league and potentially win a championship, it's worked for Golden State. We've seen that many times over. And I think the Lakers are going to try to recreate that. Also, LeBron's still advocating to see if he can get his uh, former teammate Kyrie Irving to L.A. Wouldn't that be something? Kyrie a couple years ago said, nah. I want to be on my own. I don't want to be in your spotlight. I don't want to be in your shadow. <laughs> and then now LeBron's like, eh, maybe come back. We won a couple championships in Cleveland. Maybe make your way to L.A. So I think uh, I'm keeping my eye on Kyrie Irving and seeing where he lands if he gets traded from Brooklyn. Yeah, there's a lot of rumors right now about Russell Westbrook and some sweeteners to Brooklyn for yeah. uh, Kyrie to uh, make that swap a of point guards. But uh, there are some complications around that, so to speak. But let's leave it at that because we'll be here all hour if we try to unpack all the complications that is Kyrie Irving and Russell Westbrook. Jeff, thanks for this, buddy. Have a great day. See you, Dave. That's Jeff Ryman. He's at the AMI Sports Desk. No World Juniors today, but uh, just head over to TSN and Sportsnet. You'll find stuff all day long. There's afternoon baseball, which is uh, always fun. Loved me some afternoon baseball yesterday. Sitting in the dugout deal section. A little more cost-effective for your boy Dave Brown. Let's bring in Grace Scofield for the National Weather Update. Thanks, Dave. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We start off in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where it's mainly cloudy, with some showers beginning near noon and a high of 22 degrees. In Charlottetown, a mix of sun and cloud today, becoming cloudy this afternoon, with a 30% chance of showers late this afternoon and a high of 23 degrees. In St. John, some drizzle today that will change to showers later this morning with a high of 19 degrees. Today in Quebec City, there's some showers with a high of 20 degrees. In Toronto, a mix of sun and cloud with 30% chance of showers this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm with a high of 29 degrees. In Sault Ste. Marie, sunny this morning, then a mix of sun and cloud with 40% chance of showers this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon as well, with a high of 25 degrees. Over in Brandon, Manitoba, a mix of sun and cloud with 60% chance of showers and a risk of a thunderstorm with a high of 24 degrees. In Regina, it's sunny today, becoming a mix of sun and cloud near noon with a high of 28 degrees. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's sunny, there's a heat warning in effect, and the high is 32 degrees. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's also sunny, there's a heat warning in effect, with a high of 30 degrees. In Whitehorse, it's mainly sunny today, with a high of 21 degrees. 
in Kelowna, BC, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this afternoon with a high of 36 degrees. And in Vancouver, BC, a mix of sun and cloud, but that'll clear up later this afternoon, and there's a heat warning effect here as well, with a high of 28 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Grace, you'll be very disappointed in me. I went to the baseball game yesterday, and I didn't eat a single hot dog because I ate too large a club sandwich before I went to the game. I only managed to stomach beer and popcorn, so I was very upset at myself for not getting any hot dogs. I apologize to you, as you are our Blue Jays hot dog aficionado. Dave, the whole goal of a Blue Jays game is to not eat beforehand, to eat the hot dogs. I know. Rookie mistake. rookie mistake. It was a delicious club sandwich, though. So, you know, there's something to it. Grace, thank you for this. Of course. That's Grace Scofield with your national weather update. Coming up next, Stephen Scott of Double Tap Canada has the information on the latest apps available on the Blind Classic 2 smartphone. But first, despite the rise in electric vehicle ownership, public's charging stations are still lacking. Michelle Franzen looks at a new report in Tech Trends. J.D. Power surveying more than 11,000 EV and plug-in hybrid owners, finding customer satisfaction at public charging stations declined since last year due to chargers malfunctioning or being out of service. Tesla's supercharger network fared the best when it came to customer satisfaction. Vikas Khanna owns a Tesla Model 3. He says his experience with superchargers has been broadly positive on a tech front. I can almost guarantee that anytime you go to a major Tesla charging station, there's probably one unit that's out of order. But on a whole, that generally has not played into my experience. But he's encountered another problem. More EV adoption has led to crowded charging stations. Part of the time wasn't how much time you needed to spend even at the station actually charging. It's waiting in the queue to actually find a charger that was available for you. With Tech Trends, I'm Michelle Franzen, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Stephen Scott is here. He's one of the co-hosts of Double Tap Canada. Of course, you can find that program Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. And you can find Stephen in Glasgow, Scotland. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Dave. How are you today? I'm well. Always nice chatting with you. You've got some information here about the Blind Shell Classic 2 phone, which is considered to be the most accessible phone for blind people or folks who are partially sighted. So, Stephen, let's start here. Can you give me a description of the phone? Yeah, so think back to the days of the Nokia 3310 or, you know, those kind of candy bar style phones that you would have where you had the T9 keyboard, i.e. the 1 to 9 on the keyboard, and mm-hmm. then you had your non-touch screen. Oh, remember those days? Oh, my gosh. No touch screens Tactile to deal with. buttons. Oh, yeah, Brilliant. So that candy bar style, that is what the Blind Shell Classic looks like. And uh, it has some really nifty functions. And as you say, totally accessible to blind people. So, Stephen, I think this is certainly obvious, just laid out by your description, based on the fact of no touchscreen, tactile buttons. But are there other major differences that we should highlight between other major brands like Apple or Samsung? Yeah, so one thing about these types of devices is, and we've seen many over the years, companies like Doro and Emporia who've created devices similar to this, where you have these uh, candy bar style phones, flip phones sometimes in that clamshell design, 
And, you know, some of the elements would talk, but not all of it would talk. Maybe the buttons you push, the one to nine, that would speak, but all the other buttons wouldn't or menus wouldn't speak. And that was a bit of a challenge for people totally blind. Good for people with low vision, not good for people with no vision. Now, this is where the Blind Shell Classic comes into its own. Everything talks, the whole thing speaks. Uh, every menu, every uh, area you go to, every button you press speaks. Now, this is something which is cool. And the fact that it's tactile really does stand out against Apple and, and Samsung or any other Android phone for that matter. Uh, although I will say that what is interesting about this device is it does run on Android software. Okay. It runs on its own okay. version of Android. And that's kind of cool. That is kind of neat that they're using sort of a, a Frankenstein here, putting a couple of things together, <laughs> yes. maybe old hardware and newer software. And they've recently put a couple of new features on top of this. So what are some of these added features? Yeah, so in addition to the cool things it's got, like voice control, which actually uses Google to achieve that, uh, it's got an SOS button on there if you want to make an emergency call. It's got all those kind of things. In addition, they've added an app store to it. And that means a bit like when the iPhone got its app store, they can start to develop Android apps redesigned for this device. And they've launched three already, uh, one of which is coming later in the year, hopefully by the end of September, uh, and that is Ira. Uh, and of course, for many people who've followed my show for a long time, I talk a lot about Ira, the personal assistance service that you can connect to via your smartphone. They're able to see through the back camera of your device and help you with everyday tasks, help you with navigation, all of that. Now, up until now, that's only been available on iPhones and then Androids, but now it will be available on Ira, uh, on Blindshell Classic as well, which means that for once, you know, this is on a non-touchscreen device. Now, they've also added on there uh, and it's available now, Google Lookout, which is a fantastic app. Honestly, one of the best things about using an Android phone is Google Lookout because it's such a great app for reading short text and it uses artificial intelligence to do that. If you want to read a document, it can read that to you. It can scan products. So if you pull a, uh, you know, a can out of the cupboard, you'll know what it is. Uh, great for going shopping as well, knowing what you're buying, all that kind of thing. So that's now available on the Blind Shell Classic. And more recently, they added WhatsApp which, of course, everyone uses yeah. to communicate. And for us, it's great because you can use voice message. So super cool. So, Stephen, it sounds to me like these developments are taking this phone that was functionally very accessible, but now making mm. it more usable, almost making this phone smarter, making it a smartphone as opposed to simply just, well, <laughs> a shell of a phone. But as, I'm, as, yeah. as we're looking at some of the positives, <laughs> for the sake of balance, do you – see any pitfalls or drawbacks of this phone? Yeah, so one of the things that, and, and it's interesting because I've just been talking to the company before we came on uh, with you, Dave, to talk about this. Uh, and one of the things that I brought up with them was that, first of all, it's not available on every carrier in the US at the moment. Uh, it is available on most carriers in Canada. That's good news. Uh, but it's locked into T-Mobile in the US at the moment. So that's a, bit of a, a drawback for users there. Uh, also, it doesn't have all the apps you might want. You know, I was thinking about it as, you know, wouldn't it be great if it had this app or this particular bank app that I've got? You know, mm -hmm. that's the kind of mm -hmm. thing it doesn't have and may not have. You know, it's not, they're not going to recreate the entire Google Play Store inside this device, unfortunately. That's not going to be possible because they do have to rebuild the app to some degree to make it work in this quite unique and simple environment. Uh, but you're right, this is not, uh, you know, in my view, this is kind of crossing and blurring that line between feature phone and smartphone. Because I think most people think smartphone equals touchscreen. And this is not that. This is a smartphone, but without the touchscreen. And I think this is why a lot of people like it. But yeah, 
There are some issues with it in terms of, like I say, carrier support, and it's not going to have every app you want. So, you know, it is a considered purchase, but there are a lot of people who are choosing it over iPhone. Mm-hmm. There, there might be some BlackBerry folks too who'd be like, I get a keyboard yeah. back. Like, give me that keyboard exactly. action going. So along those lines, Stephen, the phone, again, obviously the, the tailored niche demographic is people who are blind or partially sighted. Do you think yeah. this is actually a phone that someone who has sight might enjoy getting their hands on? Yeah, I think for anybody, and I, I dread to say the word older because I get lots of email when I say that, but, <laughs> um, but there are people, and it's not all older people, let's be frank about it. There's lots of people out there who just don't want to have a, an iPhone or an Android phone. They don't want to go through all that. Some people can't. You know, physically, they maybe can't use that kind of device. So they might want to have something that's a little bit, not simpler, but more adaptive to their needs. And that is very much what the Blind Show Classic can offer. The name does suggest it's for blind people. Um, I think that's something they'll rethink down the line because if they want to sell this to more people who are not disabled, and I think they could, uh, because you can turn the speech off, for example. You don't right, have to right. have the speech on, but you do get large print, so that means low vision would find this useful. I think, you know, for, for someone like yourself, Dave, for me, this is a great device, and it's something that I wouldn't quite say I'm ready to throw in my iPhone 4, <laughs> yeah. but that's that's kind of partly because of those apps, you know? It's because of yeah. those apps are not there. And, and as you and I have talked about before many, many times, familiarity uh, means, means a lot, right? That's one of the reasons why I'm still in the Android family. I know how to use Absolutely. it, and I'm comfortable with it, and I've figured out my adaptations to make it work. Just like for so many folks who are in that iPhone family, they figured out their accessibility settings, they know how to get it the way they like it, and why yeah. why why mess with why mess with happy to sort of paraphrase uh, an expression that I can't fully say on the air. Uh, Stephen, what is the uh, price tag on a sucker like this? So I quote here from CNIB Smart Life Store: five hundred and sixty-nine Canadian oh. is the price. So you know, it's considered, but it's not too bad in comparison. And I'd certainly put it up there with the iPhone SE or that kind of device. But I, you know, I say put it up there only in terms of price because it's a different experience. Right. Uh, right. I think a lot of people have been intrigued to know about this, and it's it's just I'm, I'm glad, Dave, we could talk about it today. Yeah, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it as well, Stephen. Anything else you want to highlight ahead of tonight's episode of Double Tap Canada? Yeah, tonight, actually, you are mentioned a few times on the show, and in, in a good way, I think. Um, we're talking about the headline in my notes today are monitors get weird uh, because... <laughs> Frankly, yeah, monitors are getting really strange. They've developed this new one, and I cited you as someone who might want this, a Samsung 55-inch cockpit view, as in viewing this vertically curved uh, monitor. So it actually kind of almost towers over you as you sit in front of it. Okay. Yeah, totally immersive. And I thought, this is uh, three 27-inch monitors stacked on top of each other. And I I, I suggest on the show tonight that maybe you would like that. (laughs) That was my excuse for bringing it up. I don't quite know know if I would go uh, full-blown that large, but I will say uh, for a little stretch of time, I used to keep a laptop hooked up to a 32-inch plasma flat-screen TV instead of a Mm -hmm. monitor itself. And I was like, this is awesome awesome. Uh, But I think there is a certain point where if the screen gets too big, I actually can't read everything on the screen. So it's it's a very delicate balancing act for me, Stephen. There's a line between too much you know, real estate on in front of you. But uh, you're not alone, actually. A lot of people are doing this. I'm seeing more people going for those 50-inch TVs for monitors, especially low-vision people. Yeah. So I find that quite interesting. And it's just a really interesting conversation to see how 
monitors are developing for the gaming community, but how that really could benefit us. Oh, 100%. Yeah, there's so much crossover when it comes to the gaming community and uh, accessibility yeah. in, in, in technology. Hey, Stephen, we got a scoot, man, but thank you for this. Have a great show tonight. Thank you, Dave. Have a great one. That is Stephen Scott, one of the hosts of Double Tap Canada. Of course, you can find it Thursdays, 7 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. You can find The Pulse on AMI-audio Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern time, where Judah Gupta will continue her three-part series profiling this year's inductees into the Canadian Disability Hall of Fame. This week, Joey will speak to human rights lawyer and advocate Lauren McDonald. The Pulse is found Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio or after the show on your favorite podcasting platform. Coming up next, it's Grace Scofield and the Entertainment Report. Nisreen Abdel-Majid will tell you what's trending, and I've got a weird news story. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Just before we bring in Nazreen and Ramya and Grace, I, I have to share this news stories with you, and I'm going to do it right here. A Texas man who found an alligator on his porch went full crocodile hunter in dealing with the reptile. Boy, crikey! Jim Ryan wrangles this story. As Mike Trin prepared to drive his daughter to school, the girl came running, claiming she had seen an alligator. He didn't believe her. First day, I know you're trying to skip school. Stop it. But just to be sure. I walked in front. Man, there's an alligator. Trin is an MMA fighter and a restaurateur, not an alligator wrangler. But. I've been watching Steve Irwin since I was a kid, you know what I mean? So it's uh, one of my heroes. He got the gator subdued, loaded it into his pickup truck, and released it into a bayou near his home. Yep. Back in a while. Neither he nor the gator was hurt. Jim Ryan, ABC News, Dallas. Boy, crikey, it's a spitter. I loved the crocodile hunter, but I could never wrestle an alligator. They, uh, they'd get me good. Let's bring in Nazreen Abdelmajid and find out what's trending. Nazreen, when I say Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, does that mean anything to you? It does not. Okay, age gap, <laughs> age gap kicking in there. That's fine. That's all right. There was a little bit of an age gap. It, these thing, bit, these things bit. happen. These things happen. It's all right. What's going Nailed on in the, the world? accent, though. <laughs> well, boy, Kroiki, I've been practicing it. Uh, <laughs> Nazreen, what's, what's going on in social media? So this article that I have on HuffPost is trending under news on Twitter. Uh, how many minutes per week could uh, help extend your life? Ooh. A new study... Of 116,221 adults found that people who went above and beyond the minimum guidelines for moderate and vigorous uh, physical activity had a lower risk of premature mortality. So the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services current physical activity guidelines recommend that each week adults get 150 to 300 minutes of moderate physical activity. Okay. So two and a half hours to five hours. Yeah. 75 to 150 minutes of vigor, vigorous physical activity or an equi equivalent of the combination. Um, so I know you like to work out. I do. So I wanted to know, have you reached this goal of 150 to 300, you know, moderate physical or vigorous? It's okay. It's, it's tough because I don't, unless I'm on a cardio machine, I'm not necessarily like tracking time. Right. Like unless yeah. I'm on an elliptical or a bike, I'm not necessarily tracking time, but I would say I work out for about an hour a day, five to six days a week. 
So wow. I, I probably fall inside the radar, but I don't, I don't go hard. I, I can't go hard anymore between my bad foot and my bad knees and my bad Achilles and my bad hips and my bad back and my bad shoulder and everything else that makes me uh, so fragile. Uh, I, I don't know if I even get up to like that vigorous stage. I don't even know if I necessarily get to the moderate stage. But Nizreen, I'll tell you, in an, in, an, in, an, in an ideal world, I'm on a cardio machine four times a week for about 20 minutes in conjunction with some resistance bands and uh, barbells or dumbbell lifting. So I would say I get there, but I also have a tremendously bad diet. Uh, You used to be an early morning workout person. You used to go to the gym on your way to the office. What about you? How are you doing with these kind of goals and targets? I love how you said you used to. Well, you don't don't commute to the office anymore. no, but but it's so true because I feel like I changed my lifestyle so much ever since I started working from home. I do tend to try to work out uh, three times a week, but ever since I like, you know, fractured my ribs, um, I have been fragile as well, Dave. And that makes it so much harder when you have something, you know, it's just obviously physically demanding. So you have to kind of consider your disability and also consider, you know, working out and building that healthy life habit um so trying to balance the both balance both is just difficult so uh, i do but like on average i get 180 minutes a week yeah i mean again again it's not bad like moderate to vigorous like there's probably a heartbeat per minute count that like that decides what is moderate to vigorous for folks I always say that the, the key is, and this is something that a lot of uh, health professionals will tell you as well, in terms of fitness health professionals, will tell you, do things that you enjoy. Don't worry too much about intensity. The most important thing is you can stay consistent at it. It's very much like investing. Some folks mm-hmm. are always going to say you can time the market. Other folks will tell you it's time in the market. It's the same thing with exercise. Unless you want to become Mr. or Mrs. Universe or you're a professional athlete, the key is to do the things that feel good, that make your body feel good. Don't injure yourself. Just Absolutely. keep it up. Keep it steady. And don't worry about the scale. Don't worry about the mirror. Just think about how you feel. And that's one of the really uh, great ways to think about it. Because I'll tell you, when I was bodybuilding and was super fit and had a six-pack and the scale looked really great, I felt like garbage all the time. All the time I felt like garbage. So uh, you could say that I was healthier then than I am now. And probably from objective numbers, you could say that for sure. But what I felt inside was a terrible, toxic human. And now I feel overall pretty good. Overall, pretty good. Nazreen, thank you. Thank you for this. You got it. That's Nazreen Abdelmajid with What's Trending. Let's bring in Grace Scofield for the Entertainment Report. Grace, a couple rapid fires here before we get to your topic. Uh, number one, Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter. Does that mean anything to you? Absolutely, it does. Thank you. Okay, yes. good. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> number two, uh, 180 minutes to, uh, what was it? The two and a half hours to five hours of exercise a week. I know you said you like to pop on the machine in your building from time to time. What do you think? Doable? I think I hit about half an hour of cardio five days a week. Usually work days are easier to schedule that in. And then weekends, I'm like, eh, whatever. It's yeah, fine. weekends are free for uh, You know, walking instead of taking transit on the weekends. A little easier. Make the small changes. So I think I would definitely hit the 150 minutes, especially three hours of yoga a week. But that's where it gets a little weird because I don't think that's moderate to vigorous activity. Yeah, it's tough to figure that out. Yeah, like what's the level there? So I don't know if you could count the three hours of yoga, but honestly, I'm making time for myself to move my body. So it doesn't really matter. Bingo bongo. Nailed it. Uh, Grace, what's going on in the world of entertainment? 
So I have on the show talked about my um, fights with tickets to things multiple times over the past few months, and we're going to keep talking about it. I don't have any personal experience with this problem, which is very nice for me, but the Havelock Country Jamboree is canceled for the third year in mm-hmm, a row. Mm-hmm. So a f- it's a four-day country music festival. It's been canceled, and it's also unknown whether the festival will be held in 2023. So they still are like, maybe we'll have a festival next year, but also probably not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hopeful attendees of the festival have had tickets since 2019, and these tickets cost $650 or more. That's for expensive. For a four-day country yeah, music festival. Yeah, that's a lot. It's attracted big names like Reba McIntyre has performed at the festival, Brett Kissel's performed at the festival, a bunch of bigger country names, but it's also been three years of losing out the $650. Yeah, the first yeah. two cancellations were understood by the purchasers. Pandemic, you can't really do anything about that. Give people some leeway. But now people are losing patience. They're calling for refunds with no response from the Jamboree, apart from a short sentence on their website that says, as to the issue of refunds, we are working on that as well and will advise as soon as we can. <laughs> yeah, right. Thanks. Which also doesn't <laughs> sound very professional, in my opinion. So it's kind of like, it's a little odd. Um, the Jamboree office is also closed temporarily. Like this just keeps stacking up and getting worse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the only way to contact them is by telephone. However, people who call the number and CTV journalist Pat Foran verified this are just greeted with an automated message that informs callers not to leave a message as it's not an answering service. Oh my gosh. So if the office is closed, the telephone doesn't take messages. Who do you contact? There isn't an email. You can mail to the office. You can mail something. Shame them on social media. Right? That's the only, that's (laughs) people's only options at this point. And people are frustrated because it's $650. Yeah. That's like the base price. For other tickets, it can be over a thousand for a four day music festival. And they've lost out on this money for three years now. And Grace, you said something there that I think is fair and understandable, right? That everybody understands 2020 and 2021, there's pandemic restrictions, but maybe this is a festival that you've gone to a dozen times or, or, or a bunch of times. And you say, I want to support this festival in my community. I support this music. I support this community. I want to be a part of this, but there is a breaking point that says, how long will I continue to support you and let you hold my money and roll my money over year over year before I say enough is enough. You have to give that back to me. And that's the big concern here with the cancellation of this year's festival. They haven't even necessarily offered an explanation on why it was canceled. No. And now they're saying there might not be one next year. So there isn't even a lot of hope for people to say, yeah, keep my money. I'll see you next fall or Mm -hmm. I'll see you next summer. Mm -hmm. It's, keep my money, I guess. Maybe I'll see you soon. <laughs> and it's it's a great festival. Uh, there's tons of like rave reviews about it. Yes. It's an awesome festival. But they can't hold people's that much money for over three years. Yeah. That's yeah. a little bit too much, in my opinion. There's I don't think point if sure. I had tickets, I would definitely be on that. Give me my refund front. I think one year is how long I would let an organization so. keep my cash. Again, maybe two years in the sense that they had the pandemic, but once I gave you those grace periods, you had to come back with a great festival this year and give me a good experience. Yes. You can't hang on to it for another year and be like, yeah, we're staff shortages. Especially like, when <laughs> other festivals turned around in such a quick time period yes. and put on great shows. Really did. Yep. Absolutely. People were raving about Ottawa Blues Fest this year. People at Oceaga on the ground had a phenomenal time this year from uh, reports that came back to me. So it's... Uh, it's festival season, and yeah, you don't you don't get a lot of leeway. Grace, thank you for this. Of course. That's Grace Scofield with the Entertainment Report. Let's bring in 
Ramya Amuthan to find out what's coming up on Kelly and Company at 2 p.m. Eastern time today on AMI-audio. Hey, good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. So quick questions for you. Uh, yep. Crocodile hunter Steve Irwin, does that mean anything to you when I say that name? Yeah, absolutely. He died with the, what was it, it was uh, stingray. stingray, right? Yeah, Stingray yeah. stabbed him in the heart. Pretty ironic, yeah, sad death. Yeah. You'd think it would have been a, a, a crocodile that would have gotten him, but no. I know. This was the stingray. I know. It was the stingray. Everybody said it. Yeah, We're yeah, all saying yeah. it. Uh, however, there was a That's So Raven episode. This is totally related. There was a That's So Raven episode uh, where they were trying to throw a party for Corey, Raven's brother. And this crocodile hunter imitation dude, like this parody <laughs> of the crocodile hunter showed up. It was... Uh, Something. I, I can't remember the name of it, but your impression sounded exactly like that guy. So go check it out. Oh, boy, crikey. That snake's a spitter. <laughs> you got to put me glasses on. I loved you the, cro- the exact same I thing. I loved <laughs> the I used to watch that show every day. I loved the Crocodile Hunter. Uh, Ramya, mm-hmm. what about this? Uh, these numbers that Nazreen laid down in regards to the amount of exercise per week? I know you're walking that doggo, so that's probably going to yep. keep you pretty busy. Yeah, honestly, we do like five to six K a day. Most days, I would say five days a week, like if not, you know, less. Uh, But that's the thing. I try to walk because I don't do anything else. Yeah, <laughs> other they, than other than play soccer, right? Oh, like walking's that's, well, but that's once a week. Well, yeah. walking's phenomenal for you, and soccer is also phenomenal for you. So I think, yeah, I think, yeah. you, I think you're, I think you're dinging the bells pretty good there, Ramya. Speaking of dinging the bells, what's coming up when we ring the bell at two p.m. Eastern time this afternoon? Okay, we're talking gardening, and this is a great theme this week. We're talking with Susan Kearney about replacing our existing lawn grasses so that turf lawn that everybody knows about uh, that most people still try to keep up and maintain in their front yards. We're replacing that with native sedge grasses and wildflowers, and she's going to talk about the importance of this. We already discussed this earlier on in the week. Uh, Plus, we're talking Vision Loss Rehabilitation Canada because they've partnered up with INUC Inc., to uh, launch the VLRC's eye health screening um, initiative to screen rural, remote, and Indigenous populations in northern and eastern Ontario for diabetic retinopathy. Huge initiative. We're going to learn more about it. And we have Curious Minds with Christine Malik, and this is part two of a website called Sensing the Dynamic Universe. This is making astronomy more accessible for people with disabilities, and she's going to continue on that because she loves it. Oh, I love it. Yeah, the astronomy side is a really interesting one. There was just a picture of an astrophotographer in California because Saturn was at its closest point to Earth in years and took a picture of Saturn with a uh, specialized telescope and camera. Goodness gracious, gorgeous stuff. Ramya, thank you for this. Thank you. That is Rami Amuthan, the co-host of Kelly and Company, coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, Karen McGee will be here. She'll share an update on a paddleboarder, Mike Shorman's journey across the Great Lakes. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's say hello to AMI content development specialist Karen McGee for the Central Regional Report. Hey, good morning, Karen. Good morning, Dave. How are you, my friend? I'm well. I'm all full of beans talking about the crocodile hunter. But Karen, no time for crocodile talk. We've got to get to the CNIB's Connecting the Dots event. Guy Carrier gave us just an amuse-bouche on this yesterday. And Karen, we know the agenda hasn't been finalized, but what are some of the expectations based on previous Connecting the Dots events? 
So we've both attended this event in the past, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You, you've gone, and it is usually a great lineup of keynote speakers, um, panelists, vendors. I've really enjoyed a lot of the breakout sessions, everything from accessible gaming to the latest in technology. Um, this year, they're promising to cover a lot of topics, including current trends, research, innovations in the sight loss community, um, and thought-provoking workshops and informative panel discussions. Like I said, those parts are always my favorite. You get a smaller group of people to, to sort of talk and hear ideas and suggestions. Um, they're also going to learn more about programs and services and resources for people with a connection to blindness. And just so you know who this is for, I've met everybody there. Like I go myself sort of as part of AMI to sort of do some content research. I've met parents of children who are blind or low vision. I have met um, people who are blind, low vision, young people, people more of my age. Um, but so it's it's um, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a great wide sort of range of people who attend these. It's a lot of fun. Um, they're also going to explore opportunities with Come to Work, which is an innovative program connecting job seekers who are blind or partially sighted with employers and lots more. Yeah, it's an awesome learning opportunity. These kinds of conferences are a great chance to uh, just sort of broaden your horizons and understand some of the things that are coming down the pipeline beyond just the experiences that we know. It's not just looking to the past, it's looking to the future. It's always a great opportunity to uh, think about where being blind and the services that serve people who are blind or low vision fit into that and move into the future. It's a really cool opportunity. Uh, Karen, I know the registration details can get a little bit murky, but where do you suggest people go to register or find out more? So go to cnib.ca and just FYI, if you register before September 18th, there is a discount and it's not that expensive. I think I recollect it's like $25 a day or $20 a day. I think it's $10 for the virtual ones if you register beforehand. Um, The first 100 delegates to register by August 31st will receive a uh, box packed with all sorts of goodies, which is always my favorite thing to receive as we've been known to call it swag. Swag. Stuff we all get. Stuff we all get. Love me a good swag bag. There's another S word I've used too. Who doesn't love a good swag bag? Hey, Karen, we've only got a couple of minutes here, but you wanted to provide an update on paddleboarder Mike Shoreman, who's been uh, doing a crossing of the Great Lakes all summer long on his paddleboard. So what's next? Where's he going uh, vis-a-vis uh, Lake Ontario? So this is his last one to cross. Um, It's a fundraiser for mental health. If the weather holds out, fingers crossed, he's hoping to complete his last crossing tomorrow. So he's going to leave Youngstown, New York, on the south side of Lake Ontario, from Toronto, like from Toronto. And he'll make his way across the lake via paddleboard to the Harbourfront Centre in Toronto. So um, he struggled with mental health after contracting Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, just a little background. Um, he told the Beach Metro, that um, website, that he raised just over $60,000 of the $100,000 he's looking to raise. And if he is successful, he's going to be the first person with disabilities to cross all five Great Lakes. Um, and the last four Great Lakes have not been easy. He's been dealing with lake conditions, elements, um, some nutritional issues as well. Um, and this is the second time he's tried to cross, cross Lake Ontario. He was unsuccessful last year. So fingers crossed he's going to get across safely tomorrow. Yeah, we've had a couple weather conditions last couple days with some uh, storms brewing. It never quite brewed yesterday. It's supposed to it's supposed to storm today. So hopefully everything is uh, smooth sailing tomorrow. Is there a way where folks can follow the crossing? Where can they go? So Mike's on Twitter at uh, Mike Shorman dash the unbalanced paddleboarder and on jack.org backslash uh, the number five, not the word five, Great Lakes. Um, the crossing's going to take 20 hours when he starts. If you're following on Twitter, it'll let you know when he starts. And you can meet him at the harbor front 
in Toronto, so I'm sure he would love to get a greeting there if you can do math from when he starts to 20 hours. But his team <laughs> keeps you updated as well. Jack.org slash five great lakes. Jack.org slash five great lakes. Karen, I'm sorry we had to rush you today. Have a wonderful day, and uh, I get to see you in person next week, so I'm really excited. Can't wait for it, my friend. Have a good one. <laughs> That's Karen McGee, content development specialist for AMI, based in Ottawa, Ontario. Morrisburg, Ontario, Ottawa, Ontario. It's the national capital region. Coming up tomorrow on the show, it's the news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joy Gupta. We'll talk a little bit more about Lisa LaFlamme. We'll talk a little bit more about some of those language stories that I shared with you in the first hour of the show. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.